Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. Before we get started today, I want to say a special thank you to all of the folks who participated in our Detroit Today Summer Book Club. We had the grand finale event of that club uh, Tuesday on August 28th at the Detroit Public Library main branch on Woodward Avenue. We had about 100 folks show up to talk about the book Evicted by Matthew Desmond, where we have been using that all summer to talk about housing insecurity issues here in Southeast Michigan. Uh, That book looked at how evictions in Milwaukee, Wisconsin helped cause and inculcate poverty as opposed to just being sort of a symptom of poverty. Uh, We talked all summer about eviction and foreclosure and tax foreclosure and squatting and a number of different things that we see here in Southeast Michigan that do the same thing, that keep people poor. Uh, We had lots of people participate in our events in Ann Arbor, in Warren, in Ferndale, in Gross Point, and here in Detroit. And it really was a great summer of discussion and debate and thinking about those issues, as well as talking about what the solutions are. So again, thanks to everybody who participated. And we will do it again next summer in some form. We'll pick a new book and a new issue to discuss with you, the listeners. Up front today, the faces of the Flint water crisis are, of course, the people who were exposed to lead-tainted water because of extreme official negligence. But there were also some heroic faces that emerged from this state's largest historic public health crisis. Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha spotted what was going on in Flint very early, tried to get officials to pay attention, and ultimately became one of the most animated advocates for justice in Flint. Her new book, What the Eyes Don't See, is a riveting first-person account of Dr. Atisha's journey during the Flint water crisis. She joins us now to talk about Flint, to talk about water, to talk about where we are headed. Dr. Atisha, welcome to Detroit Today. Stephen, it's great to be here with you. It's really great to have you here in the studio. Let's start here. Uh, Yesterday, we received word that the Detroit public school system is shutting off all of its drinking water fountains after tests showed that high levels of lead and copper were in the fountains. This is not a new story in Detroit. This is an extreme response, though. Uh, What I remember in the past is that some schools would have their water uh, turned off to the fountains and others were were okay. This suggests it's getting worse, not better. It also suggests, I think, from your chair, how important the global discussion about water clean water, access to clean water is in in the state of Michigan. Yeah, so I really applaud the Detroit Public Schools for taking this step. It's Mm -hmm. a recognition that we do have lead in our water and we do have lead in our water in our schools, not only in Flint, but all over the state and all over this nation. The GAO, the Government Accountability Office, just released a report um, a month or two ago about lead in water in schools all over this nation. And this is one of the positive ripple effects of the Flint crisis, Mm -hmm. is this raised national consciousness, this raised awareness of this issue and that we need the investment in not only the awareness of this issue, but to get the lead out. Um, You know, the greatest irony is that schools are places where we are supposed to grow the potential of our children, yet they're being robbed of their potential when they're exposed to something like lead in their water. Yeah. And and how common uh, do you believe this is, this problem with not just lead, but other kinds of uh, toxins that, that show up in the drinking water, not just in schools, but but statewide. I mean, one of the things that you point out that the Flint water crisis really uh, put our attention on was this idea that 
there we have we have serious problems in a number of places, and that uh, we are not doing the things that we need to do to fix those. Yeah, so that's kind of the whole point of my book, what the eyes don't see. So mm-hmm. we've been kind of blinded mm-hmm. to a lot of these issues. And I never, you know, I trusted my water. Who doesn't trust that you, when you turn on your tap that your water is safe? It is America, the richest right. country You're supposed to be in able the history to of the world. But we're in Michigan. We are literally in the middle of the largest source of fresh water in the world. But despite all that, there's rules and regulations and people that make sure that when we turn on our water, it is safe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I have learned over these last few years is that these rules and regulations are not strong enough. And they have not caught up with the science, especially the science of lead, where we now know there is no safe level. You know, there are no rules and regulations that govern lead and water in schools and child care facilities. There's nothing on the books. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need to and, and school districts are doing this work on their own above and beyond what they have to do. Um, so there is a need for stronger regulations to protect our children. Uh, uh, how far back do you imagine that this problem Dates. I mean, that's one of the things that I think we don't talk much about is how long we have neglected this part of our infrastructure. And that really is the, the, the sort of key dynamic here, which is that, you know, uh, once upon a time here in the city of Detroit, we built one of the greatest water systems in the world, uh, the envy of other places. H- how long have we been in a position that that system hasn't been updated or cared for in a way that prevents it from from poisoning us. Yeah, so you know we think our roads and our bridges are bad, but what's underground is, is probably even worse. Mm-hmm. Um, we have not made as a city, as a state, as a nation investment in that infrastructure. Um, and this is a problem that is, is not new. It's been known for centuries. Mm-hmm. So um, the elemental symbol for lead, do you know it by chance? Do you remember high school chemistry? Uh, PB, Good right? Good job. Yeah, PB. So PB. <laughs> I did not do well in chemistry, so the fact that I pulled that out is <laughs> You get an A right now. Right? So PB <laughs> comes from the Latin plumbum, which means plumbing. So lead actually mm. means plumbing. Yeah, that's in your book That's as well. in my book. Yeah. I mean, I talk a lot about the history of lead and, and the history of a lot of things, um, public health history and, and Flint history, because to know where we are, we really need to take a, a look back. And it's mm-hmm. not like boring history. It's like Grisham page turning history <laughs> right, per right. Oprah. That's what she said when she put it on her summer reading list. Um, but we have to, you know, you know, the Romans built their aqueducts out of lead plumbing. And there's actually theories that hypothesize the demise of the Romans is because they used so much lead. Mm. Not only their plumbing, they also did crazy things like put it in their food. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But we've known about what lead can do in, in our plumbing and our infrastructure but yet we've lacked the political will to, to protect our most vulnerable populations, yeah. especially our children. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, a pediatrician who was among the first to sound the alarm over elevated lead levels in Flint children during the water crisis. She is the author of a new book, What the Eyes Don't See, a story of crisis, resistance, and hope in an American city. Uh, If you would like to discuss uh, lead in the water or other environmental issues with Dr. Hannah Atisha, uh, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will try to work you into the conversation. Also, give us a call and tell us what you think about the news today that the Detroit Public Schools 
are shutting off all drinking water after tests showed high levels of lead and copper in the water fountains. Uh, what does that tell you about where we are headed uh, in terms of public education in this city, where we're headed with infrastructure? Are we doing the things that we need to do to make sure that drinking water is safe? Again, the number, as always, on the phones is 313-577-1019. Uh, Dr. Hannah Tisha, I want to talk about your book and the beginning chapters of your book, which I was really moved by. And, and I guess uh, those were things I didn't know, um, uh, things about you and why you do the things you do, how you grew up, how you came to be a pediatrician in, in Flint, Michigan. Um, talk a little about how that background uh, sort of inspired the questions that you asked early on in this and inspired that tenacity you had uh, when people said, eh, I don't think this is such a big deal. You didn't just you didn't just go away. Yeah. So this book is not just a Flint water crisis book. It, it's so much more. It's very much a memoir, and it, it weaves my personal family history into this book. Because to know to know me, to understand what I did and why I did it, you have to know who I am and where I came from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm I'm an immigrant. So we came to this country when I was four, very much fleeing the regime of Saddam Hussein, mm-hmm. uh, fleeing oppression and fascism and tyranny and dictatorship. And we came to this country for for freedom, for democracy, for opportunity. And Lady Liberty absolutely opened her arms <laughs> and welcomed me and my family. And we settled in this metro Detroit area, in this growing, you know, this large community of Arab Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, and I grew up, you know, competent and confident and proud of the diversity that I brought to the table. And I think it's, this is an important part of the story now because I look at these four-year-olds at the border, these other four-year-olds who are fleeing countries of oppression and you know dictatorship and trying to come here for that same dream, and they're not they're not being welcomed right. today as I was when I was a kid. And right. you got to wonder what we're missing out on. So. When I grew up, I was every day grateful to be in this country. I grew up with a lens of being so fortunate and 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 lucky to be here, to be in this land of opportunity, because that American dream was realized for me and my family. But I also grew up very much knowing what injustice could be, mm-hmm. knowing what people in power could do to vulnerable populations. And my parents never shielded us from from what was happening back home. And um, I vividly remember um, when I was about 11 or 12, my father showed me um, a picture of the Halepcha massacre. Mm. If you remember this, this is the greatest chemical weapons attack mm-hmm. where Saddam Hussein literally poisoned an entire city, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the village of Halepcha, a Kurdish population in northern Iraq, and 5,000 people died. And I still to this day have that image of this beautiful chubby baby mm-hmm. being coddled by her father and both of them you know, dead on the side of the street. Mm-hmm. And it was with that that lens, that perspective that I grew up, um, very much acutely knowing what injustice could be, being fortunate to be here, and thus pledging kind of my life and my career to serve and to fighting for injustice mm-hmm. where, wherever I ended up, uh, be it you know in Iraq or, or be it here <laughs> in, in my community in Michigan. Yeah. And, and when you first started to sense that things were not right in Flint, did you feel sort of in your gut, the the weight of all of that history that, that you had and had uh, witnessed or experienced, is, is that what 
what was driving you at that point? Absolutely, that was part of it. So it's, it's part of those the values and, and that perspective that I had instilled in me as a child. Um, I've also been blessed with incredible role models and mentors and peers throughout my education uh, in all of the public schools here in Michigan um, and, and the university at the medical school. Um, so all of these forces that had instilled in me to to serve my community. You know, as a pediatrician, Stephen, I, I literally took an oath to protect children. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this was very much my professional mm-hmm, responsibility mm-hmm. Um, to stand up, to be the voice of, of these kids, to make sure that, you know, that their pr- potential was being protected. But it wasn't just a professional responsibility. It was also very much that moral and ethical a duty that we all have to stand up and protect children. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We get a lot of people queued up to talk with Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha. You can also go to the Facebook page uh, here at WDET. Put your comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you in. Uh, Jen on Twitter says she wants to first express a sincere thank you to you, Dr. Hannah Atisha, for your perseverance and tenacity. But then she says, as horrible as the Flint water crisis is, it could have been even worse. I think that's an interesting idea. Could it have been worse? I mean, worse than exposing an entire city's population to elevated lead in water? I don't know how much how much worse could it have been? Yeah, so for 18 months, you know, the people of Flint were were drinking this water and, and being told it was okay. Um, and the perspective that I had and a lot of the characters in the story had were was a similar crisis in Washington D.C., which mm-hmm. happened about a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And that crisis, that lead and water crisis, lasted longer, and the levels were even higher. And nobody to this day has been held accountable for that crisis. Um, so we never expected the state to finally concede. And admit that they were at fault, and you know that there was a problem. Um, I was expecting, and I was digging my heels into a, a years-long fight uh, to get the truth out. Yeah. So it, it could have been worse. Uh, it could have taken longer, but obviously, this never should have started in the first place. Yeah. All right. Let's get to the phones here. Uh, Frank in Detroit. Frank, welcome to Detroit today. Morning, everyone. How are you guys doing? Good. Great. How are you? Um, getting back to DPN. And I know Flint is a very good topic. You know, in my opinion, um, it's it's just basic urban cities throughout America. You know, like I know, Dr. H, that most urban environments have been built on lead, lead supplies, mm-hmm. uh, lead valves, things of that nature, because lead's cheap, easy to use. Um, when you got situations uh, like grants to the government where they take away, like in Detroit, for example, they took away the Neighborhood Revitalization Act or uh, grant, you know, that helped revitalize homes mm-hmm. that took lead out of homes because right. that was that's what the Revitalization Act was based on. When you take away things like that, this is what you end up with. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frank, I, I really appreciate the call uh, and the comments. You know, this idea that, that um, we've been doing this for a long time and then trying to row back from it, uh, it, it does get to... Uh, this question of of uh, whether we ought to be trying to abate the lead that exists in the infrastructure or replace it, right? I mean, this was one of the this was one of the key questions in the water crisis, right? If they had if they had just added the chemical they were sure. supposed to add, supposedly everything would have been okay. But 
but it, not really. It right? wouldn't have eliminated the exposure, right. but it would have minimized the exposure. And we definitely, as a nation, need to be heading towards the elimination of lead. Mm-hmm. If we now know something has no safe level and it's a potent irreversible neurotoxin and it's a known form of environmental racism. Right. So our kids in Flint already had higher lead levels, just like kids in Detroit and Chicago and Baltimore and Philadelphia. Some of our country's most vulnerable children in these urban areas, older communities, are already suffering higher rates of, of lead exposure. Exposure. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, it's because we know all of this and what it does, then our direction, our investments needs to be in eliminating those exposures. And it's not just from water. Yeah. It's also from from paint and from soil. We we use lead a lot. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that legacy, it remains. It's a heavy metal. It persists. It's hard to get rid of. Um, but because we know what it can do now and because of the disparity in what it does, um, we need to act on that. So, so I wonder if they had used the proper chemicals in Flint, would you have noticed the things that you noticed about this? I mean, would we, we would would we just be sort of going on happily, not not understanding what the what the dimension of the crisis is? Yeah. So the um, you know we we switched to the Flint water, but mm-hmm. the Flint River water wasn't treated with the necessary corrosion control, right. which supposedly only would have cost eighty to one hundred dollars a day to add. Um, that treatment wasn't added, and actually the pump to install that treatment chemical was never installed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have. Um, been still very difficult to manage because river water is more difficult to manage than Great Lakes water, mm-hmm. but it probably would have been okay, and we probably wouldn't ha- have had such a crisis. Um, but so you know, the but we ta- would still have had this issue, which is that uh, the the pipes could start leaching at, at, at any sure, point. Sure, the right? pipes, uh, the water would still probably have been more corrosive, but not as corrosive. But you have, you know, you have lead in pipes everywhere. Mm-hmm. We had, you know, lead in, in service lines wasn't restricted until 1986. Um, but lead in, in brass fixtures wasn't restricted until 2014. Hmm. So they would, you know, they, you know, definitely they would have eventually kind of leached out. So right. the solution is getting the lead out. And because of Flint, more communities are finally putting in that investment. Uh, Flint is in the process of replacing our lead pipes. Right. And, you know, when we're done, we're only going to be the third city in the country that has replaced their lead pipes wow. behind behind Lansing, Michigan and Madison, Wisconsin. But because of Flint, Flint, more communities are finally making that investment and in getting the lead out of their water system. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to continue our conversation with Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, and we are going to hear from you, Charlie in Royal Oak, Elisa in Northern Michigan, George in Detroit, and Vince in Hamtramck. Stay with us on the phones. If you want to join them, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. My guest is Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha, pediatrician who was among the first to sound the alarm over the Flint water crisis. She is the author of What the Eyes Don't See a story of crisis, resistance, and hope in an American city. If you would like to join the conversation with Dr. Hannah Atisha, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 
1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We've got a lot of folks queued up to talk with the doctor here. But before we get to that, I want to play something for you, Dr. Hannah Atisha. Two weeks ago, we spoke with a colleague of yours at Hurley Medical Center, Dr. Hernan Gomez, who specializes in pediatrics and toxicology. He released a study that showed no children in Flint showed blood lead levels high enough during the crisis to qualify as medically poisoned by lead. And he quibbles with the term poisoned to refer to what happened in Flint. Here's a clip from that conversation. So when we're talking about poisoning with lead, we're talking about permanent changes and decrease in IQ, permanent changes in behavior. This includes violent crime. And so uh, our researchers uh, in, in my lead study and those I, I have uh, collaborated with, mm-hmm. uh, we feel that, that it would be a disservice to call the, an entire generation of children permanently brain damaged because that is what the word poison in this context is, is insinuating. Yeah. Okay, so really what he's talking about is, is quite technical, that, that uh, according to the study he uh, was a part of, the lead levels that were reported during the Flint water crisis don't rise to the level of poisoning. I'm really curious about your reaction to that conclusion. Yeah, so this is a game of semantics. Poisoning means different things to different people. Uh, Lead, as we know, is a well-known, well-studied ancient poison. It has no safe level. So any amount of lead can impact children's cognition and behavior. Um, What he is talking about is a level where you have to be admitted to the hospital because of acute symptoms where you need something called chelation therapy. Nobody in Flint had levels that high, but just because we do not see acute poisoning, acute intoxication, where you need to be admitted to a hospital for acute treatment does not mean that it does not cause harm. And that's actually the whole point of my book, what the eyes don't see. So lead in water is invisible. Lead Mm -hmm. lead is known as a silent pediatric epidemic. Mm -hmm. It is not seen by a clinician in a doctor's exam room. It has population-level impacts. The work on lead is, is, uh, has been studied by the field of, for example, environmental health and epidemiology. We know what it does to populations, how it drops that IQ curve, how it shifts it to the left and gives you less gifted kids and more kids in special education. So this is just a, kind of a myopic view of, of medicine where we're only looking at one child in front of us rather than the incredible science of, of what happens at populations. Um, so to the people of Flint, this, this game of semantics is not helpful. So, so one of the other things he said when he was here <clears throat> was that. Uh, so I was born in 1970, mm-hmm. right? And and uh, and our lead levels were a lot worse. You say uh, absolutely. There was lead in and gasoline, we and we didn't wear seatbelts. There was and we lead didn't in wear paint. white helmets, yeah. and we didn't know about asbestos. <laughs> so just because things were worse before doesn't mean it's okay. So we have. So would you describe? me then, or anyone born in the era that I was, as having been lead poisoned. So now that, so back in that day, we did not understand the full toxicity of lead. Over the last few decades, that emerging science has been incredible and has gotten us to the point that we now know that there is no safe level. So, and as these years have advanced, that level of concern has dropped from 40 to 20 to 10 to Mm -hmm. five, and now it is zero, um, that level of concern. So back in the day, more people were exposed to lead, um, but we have learned a lot. We got lead out of paint, we got lead out of gasoline, 
have all these new efforts in place. It's a public health victory. Right. But at the same time, we understand what the what low level does. And we also understand that sometimes it's the lowest levels and c- that can cause the steepest decline in cognition and behavior. Yeah. So just because something was worse or higher then, and it's it's lower now, you know, we, it's science has taught us a lot and we have to respect that science. Yeah. So this kind of reminds me of, of what's happening in our nation right now in terms of science denial, mm-hmm. where we are dismissing the science, for example, of climate change and these regulations that protect our air and our water quality. This is consistent with that because it disrespects the science of lead's toxicity. So, so do you worry, though, that uh, describing the children of Flint as having been lead poisoned, given what he was, uh, Dr. Gomez was talking about, that's associated with violence and crime, uh, all of these very negative dynamics. Do you worry about that stigma in any way? You know, the, we have worried about the stigma since the day one of the crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have put into place, all of my work every day right now is to make sure that our Flint children have the brightest future possible. If somebody's worried about the stigma, come work with me and get mm-hmm. involved in all the amazing <laughs> things that are happening in Flint. And we have built, and I, this is what the book also articulates, uh, a model of hope in Flint. Uh, we have, for example, expanded the capacity of home visiting programs, mm-hmm. two brand new child care centers, near universal preschool, home visiting programs, early literacy support, school nurses, Medicaid expansion, and the list goes on of things that we have put in place so that we never see the consequences of this crisis. And it is not just a lead crisis. You need to take a step back and also realize that we had a, a Legionnaires outbreak. Right. People died, mm-hmm. skin issues, and just the trauma and the betrayal of this crisis, it can lead to poor outcomes. Yeah. Um, so the lead is one piece of a, of a bigger story. It's a it's a story of children who who live in toxicity, not just lead, but poverty and violence and incarcerated parents and unemployment and racism. This is one of many toxicities that our kids in Flint have been exposed to. Yeah. All right. Let's get to the phones. We've got a lot of folks here who want to talk about these issues. Let's go to Vince in Hamtramck. Vince, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, Stephen. Uh, thank you for continuing this conversation. Uh, I think it's really, really important um, not only to be talking about the specific, like, um, uh, lead poisoning, and you just, your guest just mentioned Legionnaire's disease outbreak and whatnot, um, but I, like she was saying, I think it's part of a bigger issue. Um, I think that uh, we really need to focus on the role of government here, mm-hmm. and with the leadership that we've had, unfortunately, in the state of Michigan um, through the Snyder administration, it, they've shown that they care about short-term budget planning a lot more than they care about actually taking care of the citizens of the state. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think it's a widespread issue across the country. Um, since Reagan said that government's the problem, there's been this uh, issue of government having to, to defend its service for communities. Yeah. And I feel like we're getting away from what government should be doing and we're seeing the problems of that now. Yeah. Uh, Vince, thanks very much for the call and, and the comments. Uh, very much on point with the conversation we're having. Uh, Dr. Hannah Atisha, in the, in the book, you, you get fully into what, what happened here, why it happened. Uh, one of the things that I think is really interesting about Flint, though, is that this, this question over where the water comes from, who they ought to pay for the water is a very old question uh, in Flint. And I can remember in the 80s and the 90s, 
uh, Flint saying we want out of Detroit water because uh, it costs us too much money. Mm-hmm. We're paying too much money to the city of Detroit. We don't trust them. Uh, mm-hmm. We think they're ripping us off. Uh, this idea, though, of money driving decisions about infrastructure, about public health, uh, in the book, as you point out, this is this is epidemic, and it is not just in Flint. It is not just in Michigan. Yeah. So, and Vince was spot on. So it's you know, there's a lot of villains in the story, mm-hmm. but the villains are these ideologies of austerity mm-hmm. and that big government is bad government. Um, that's what what caused the Flint crisis. One of the many things that caused the Flint crisis. We need good government. We need smart government. We need responsive government. We need government that protects our public welfare mm-hmm. and makes sure that kids in, in rich areas and and poor areas get the same quality of water. Mm-hmm. That is what government is about, and, and that. That is what was taken away here in Flint. You know, Flint, the story also weaved into this book is very much the, the issues of democracy. Mm-hmm. As you recall, Flint was under emergency management. Um, and this is not just a Flint issue, too. We know this, you know, riddled the state. But also we have democracy issues all over this nation when yes. you consider things like voter disenfranchisement and, and gerrymandering and, you know, mass incarceration. These are robbing people's, you know, voices at the table all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. Again, Vince, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Let's go to Linda in Detroit. Linda, welcome to Detroit today. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Mm -hmm. Um, My comment, I mean, you kind of just hit it spot on, actually. But um, I guess just to comment on that, um, I'm I'm a student at Wayne State, and I'm majoring in environmental science with a minor in geology. You're awesome. Thanks. (laughs) Um, You're awesome, too. And um, I guess... It's just kind of frustrating because, I mean, I used to live in Chicago. I grew up in Chicago, so I don't really know much about Michigan politics. But when this crisis came along, I started hearing that, you know, oh, well, we can't fix it because of all these, you know, these, you know, players in here. And, you know, we can't really do much about it in terms of, like, money and all that who's going to pay for it. But um, I also have a brother who's a doctor. So I guess maybe a question to you would be, what can I do, like, you know, as someone who cares about the environment, also, like, who has family who cares about, you know, health mm. people, like, it's also frustrating that, you know, as a student here, we can't, you know, why can't we just, like, take two up there and maybe, like, learn how to test the water and stuff like that, but, huh. you know, I just want to know, like, I want to do more, but, you know, why can't I, you know? So that is why I wrote this book. So Mm. you can do more and you Mm. are doing more. So this book is very much, you know, what the eyes don't see. It's about people and places and problems that we choose not to see. The the Mm. need for all of us to open our eyes, for all of us to be awake and to be alert. But this book is really a playbook. It's a rallying cry how we can all be loud and stubborn and persistent and not accept the status quo. This is not just about Flint. This is about issues all over this nation mm-hmm. that we feel passionate about, that we can make a difference in. So, you know, you have that passion. You have that voice. You have incredible, you know, you know, smarts about you. So read the book. Uh, I hope it inspires you to take action on, on any issue that you feel passionate about and not accept the status quo and make a difference in the life of your community and, and no matter where that community may be. Yeah. Uh, Linda, again, thanks very much uh, for the call and good luck with your studies here at Wayne State University. Uh, Dr. Hannah Atisha, I also want to ask you about Nick Lyon, who is the head of the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. He is on trial for manslaughter in the Flint water crisis case, but he also continues to hold his role 
as director of that department with full support of Governor Snyder. And uh, in, in some ways, this goes to to some of the things you point out in the book, uh, to the, the the question of what priorities are, what's important, and what's not. Um, uh, this idea that someone should keep their job while they're on trial for uh, you know uh, uh, for manslaughter is is very strange. Um, but I also wonder what you think about personal culpability in this, in that way, and criminal culpability. That's something that has been somewhat controversial throughout the, the, the crisis. I think a lot of people were very surprised that uh, that Attorney General Bill Schuette uh, charged anyone. In this case, I think he's charged three people so far. But but I'm very curious what you think about that approach. Is that is that a necessary part of ensuring that justice is done in Flint? Yeah, so, you know, I'm a doctor. I'm not a prosecutor. However, um, <laughs> accountability is important. So I often think of the Flint water crisis and, and our recovery as a truth and reconciliation process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And getting at that truth it is these efforts at accountability. We need to know what happened. We need to know what role people played. And then there's a there's a role for restorative justice and reparations. And then we can really move into that long process of of healing. So these efforts at accountability are are critically important. I hope they're done fairly and done across the spectrum of involved players. Um, And I, you know, this is all ongoing. This is a lot more to come and I think it will take quite, quite a bit more time. uh, Do you think that someone going to prison for this is part of what will help people in Flint feel like they've gotten justice? I don't know if it's going to prison. I think that could be part of it. But, you know, the crimes were committed. People didn't do what they were supposed to do. You know, they didn't do their professional responsibility. There was cover up. You know, there was, you know, bad things that happened. Mm -hmm. Um, And people need to be held accountable for that. Okay, Uh, let's go to Robert in Detroit. Robert, welcome to Detroit today. Hi, um, I just want to say thank you so much for what you're doing, doctor, and um, I'd love to see you run for office or something. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we were just told that the, the the Trump administration, they were going to put all this money into infrastructure. I don't think any of it's been done. But what I want to get at is you're very knowledgeable in everything, and probably much more than I am. And I was talking to a painter recently, and, and he said that in, in oil-based paints, there still is a certain amount of um, lead in it. Mm. And also some of the, the faucets and fixtures that we have contain small amounts of lead in them. And I think, you know, the government sometimes comes up with these de minimis rules where they say, well, there's there's so little that we're going to say there's zero in it. And you mentioned also that, you know, we don't use lead anymore. And I'm just wondering, you know, are we being hoodwinked because we're putting profits over, you know, the safety of people? Yeah, what do you think about that? Yeah, you're right. We still use uh, quite a bit of lead. We have lead in bullets. We have lead in different weights. We have lead in fishing supplies, and there also are there is still lead in certain plumbing fixtures. Um, you know, the the plumbing industry actually was allowed to say that their products were lead free, even though they still contained an average of eight percent lead. Um, until 2014, but mm. then it changed at that time. Um, and of so course yeah, it's cumulative, right? Yeah, it's it's a cumulative exposure, uh, and you know it's different. You know, it's worse for the younger children. Uh, so you know, we we have to we haven't yet eliminated all of these exposures, and, and industry definitely still plays a role. Mm. But also in the paint, in particular, I wonder if that's mm. true that there still is in lead 
and uh, oil-based paints, a small amount of lead. I don't know that exactly, yeah, I don't but, know that but you know, old lead paint, you know, lead paint, if, right. if you live in an old home and, you know, you peel off paint, uh, a chunk of paint, you can see all those layers. It's like a tree, you know, rings of a tree. Um, and that is very difficult to get rid of because it's still a, a legacy exposure mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. in all of our older communities. Yeah. Again, thank you again for all you're doing. Thank you. Robert, thanks very much for the call uh, and the comments. Uh, let's go to Lewis in Detroit. Lewis, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Uh-huh. Go I just uh, go through this quickly because I know you got a lot of people, but I think you guys may be hung up too much on the minutia. Okay. Uh, that's not really our job. You look at the macro perspective, and you'll see that the Great Lakes Water Authority, they're in charge of all of it, really, and they're supposed to, but they have no oversight. Nobody looks into their drawer to see what they're doing. Uh, it's the same thing that took place with Detroit Water and Sewer Department being repeated with the Great Lakes Water Authority. Hmm. There are no elected officials there. There's no accountability. And there's other things that go on, too, that we don't know about. For instance, the, the 2014 summer storm we had with big flooding, mm-hmm. that was an electrical outage really caused by poor maintenance by the Water Authority. There was another water outage at Jefferson and Chalmers a year or so later where an outbreak of hepatitis took place. Mm-hmm. In fact, Abdul al-Sayed had a lot to do with preventing a really big outbreak of hepatitis. That's because of a power failure. Mm-hmm. Now, the main power plant, the waste disposal and water plant on Jefferson Avenue near the Rouge River, had a power outage for nearly six months of the last year, from June to um, almost uh, December. Mm-hmm. And it cost a million dollars a month to bring in portable generators for wow. power that was unnecessary if they followed through with their original plans, but they did not. Lewis, I really appreciate the call and the comments. I will say that that the oversight for Great Lakes Water Authority is through the elected officials in all of the partnership jurisdictions. So uh, uh, Mayor Duggan and Brooks Patterson and Mark Hackle all appoint people uh, to the authority in order to, to, to manage that. And those are the people you should you should hold accountable for it. But uh, Mona, I, I think there is still question about oversight of water in Flint uh, with this development of the Carignandi Water Authority and going to, to to get a new water source. I'm still very worried about what could happen there and how accountable all that will be to the people in Flint as opposed to. Um, uh, profit or, or or bureaucracy. Yeah, so Flint decided to stay on um, on Detroit Water. So mm-hmm. we we are we remain now with the Great Lakes Water Authority. Mm-hmm. They signed a long term contract with with uh, with the Great Lakes Water Authority. So that's a relief to many folks because switching water would have been traumatic again. Yeah. Whenever you switch water, you you know it's a it's a new system. Um, so that was I think a smart decision to stay with Great Lakes. And Carignanity will will service whom then? It serves the rest of Genesee County and other um, surrounding communities. And I think the KWA pipeline is also uh, a backup water source uh, for Flint in case something happens with the, the current water source. Yeah. Okay. Uh, again, Lewis, thanks very much for your call and uh, your comments. Elisa in Northern Michigan, you're up next. Hi. Good morning. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, 
Dr. Hannah Tisha for all of your work. My daughter is a student at Wayne State, and she's studying global studies and has cited um, the Flint water crisis and a lot of your work and her numerous projects throughout her years at Mm -hmm. Wayne State. Um, My question is, um, what do we drink at home? Is it safe to turn on our tap water and drink from there? Should we purchase water? Should we treat our water at home? Hmm. Um, should we use a filter? Um, and I would appreciate some insight on that. Thank you. Yeah. Great question. Thank you very much, Elisa. So like I said earlier, I've learned so much about drinking water, which I, I had no idea anything <laughs> about before. Um, and when it comes to lead in water, the, the rules on the books are don't protect people fully. So if you were worried about lead in water, I would recommend using a lead clearing filter. Uh, the National Sanitation Foundation, NSF, um, has guidelines on which filters are lead clearing filters. You can attach them to your kitchen faucet. You can get them as faucet or as a pitcher filters. Um, and I think that's the most important for vulnerable populations. So who are those? So like a pregnant mom um, or a baby on formula who's mixing the formula with water. So those are those are the folks where you're, you know, that's when your development system is, is rapidly growing. That's when your brains are happy, you know, developing. Those are the populations that really need to be using things like a lead clearing filter. But wherever you are, you should be just asking questions, you know, contact your public work department or whoever runs your water utility and ask for test results and ask if they're in compliance and ask what else we can do above and beyond to make sure that our water is safe to drink. So just keep being persistent, keep being loud, keep asking questions, bother your elected officials. They, you know, that's why they're there um, to find out what's what's happening with your drinking water. Yeah. Okay, Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha, author of What the Eyes Don't See, a story of crisis, resistance, and hope in an American city. Really great to see you here in Detroit today. Great to be with you. Up next, Jazz Fest is this weekend, and we're going to talk to artistic director Chris Collins about what to expect this year. Stay with us on Detroit Today. (laughs) 